Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 121, July 10th to July 16th, 1863. Last week, we fought the third day at Gettysburg. Hopefully, if I have done my job correctly, we have come to the conclusion that while Pickett's Charge is sort of the main event, there is more to day three with action at Culp's Hill, as well as the various cavalry actions to the east and south of the main battlefield. We need to wrap up the battle with a little aftermath and analysis. Additionally, we need to head to Mississippi and officially end the Vicksburg Campaign, another heavy blow to the south. First, though, let's look back to the Pennsylvania farmland one more time. Just as a quick note before we get to the Keystone State here, there is Patreon content. We talked about it here in the last couple episodes, did a movie review, and that, of course, had to have been uh, Gettysburg, based off the novel The Killer Angels, and that 1993 movie starring Martin Sheen and Tom Berenger, as well as Jeff Daniels. And that movie review should be posted to the Patreon by now, so you should see that in the feed there. And obviously, I think it's a great movie, so I'm not going to hide my feelings there, but there are some interesting things that we can compare to our narrative here about that movie, about the battle. So that sounds like something that would interest you. There is a link to the Patreon here in the show description, of course, the proceeds for that do go toward the general upkeep of the show. So very appreciated. We will begin this week by officially concluding Gettysburg. We may have fought the battle, but we still have the aftermath to deal with. Nellie is going to sit on July 4th and wait for a period of time, but he is going to have the same problem that he essentially has at Antietam. In that battle, there had been significant losses, much the same as at Gettysburg, that would limit any offensive action. While the Army of Northern Virginia was not on the offensive in Maryland in 1862, they had spent three days attacking the Army of the Potomac and had sustained heavy casualties. What was more, there would be no additional troops that would arrive to help Lee. That's something that he is seeking. He either wants reinforcements or he wants... Beauregard to come up with a phantom army and at least kind of put pressure on Washington, that's not going to happen either. And obviously, as we talked about here in the last few episodes, he uses all the troops that he has available, right? So he doesn't have really any reserves to call on. Whereas the Union Army, they have the Sixth Corps that gets plugged in in various places, but at least those troops would be fresh. Lee would not have a fourth day of attacks considering he had not cracked the fishhook in two heavy attempts. Meade was much like McClellan. He would not give Lee the opportunity to wage a defensive battle, a.k.a. he did not take the bait. I've seen several accounts and also source material that cites Meade doesn't want to flip things around, right? Seminary Ridge, uh, across from Cemetery Ridge, is uh, essentially attacking over the same ground that Lee just attacked over, and that did not go very well, so he does not want to return the favor. The Confederates would then prepare to withdraw. 
casualties for the battle were enormous. There are several estimates of actual numbers. 20,000 to 23,000 Union compared to 22,000 to 28,000 Confederates. In the battle, the rebels had suffered the equivalent as two Pearl Harbors and as many casualties that the U.S. Army will suffer from D-Day into August of 1944. This gives us an idea of the sheer totals in loss. 8,000 Confederate wounded would begin the hard journey back toward the mountain passes. If Lee's army was going to make good a retreat, South Mountain would provide cover. Unfortunately, many of the more seriously wounded on both sides were left behind. This is how Francis Barlow, for instance, is recovered following the gray-clad withdrawal. Meade, as we mentioned, did not have his army necessarily in a position to give chase. If we look at his personnel situation, we have several new or replaced commanders in his upper echelon. Hancock and Gibbon, both capable, have been wounded. Newton is new to his command. The Third Corps has been smashed, as has the 11th, although they were not probably going to be trusted by Meade anyway. Sedgwick and his 6th were still mostly fresh, but they had been distributed around the battlefield, so they would need to consolidate before giving chase. Another immediate problem for the Union troops was supply. Some key rail lines had been burned, which is why Westminster and the route back there was so important. Accounts of the Six Corps' long march include lack of shoes. Some soldiers would even include in their writings about how there really wasn't anything to eat on the 4th. In addition, there were supply issues with ammunition. Remember that on Pickett's charge on the third day, there had been a conservation of artillery rounds. Henry Hunt didn't want to run out before the Confederates actually began their assault, and so that problem hasn't necessarily gone away. They still are running low on ammunition, and you're going to need that if you're going to want to engage the Confederate Army. These would all add into the lack of an immediate pursuit. We will talk about that pursuit and the associated actions with that here shortly and also in future episodes, because while the battle may be over, the campaign certainly is not. While the campaign is still going on, we need to officially have our conclusions on the battle. I think if you had paid attention to the last two episodes, you will find my feelings, and that is there are two main conclusions. The first is that there are plenty of missed opportunities for Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia. The second is rather subtle, but it's that Meade is the right guy to have waged this battle, although he is not without his flaws. Let's take a look at that first conclusion. Lee's usual MO is that his primary subordinates get a lot of leeway with his orders. And there's no pun intended, of course, with leeway. Now, Longstreet is usually good for that scenario, but in this case, he is subpar, as is the usually aggressive AP Hill. We can kind of see the transformation of his battlefield command in that regard. Yule is also not going to be the best guy in his role. Now, could Yule have pushed onto Cemetery Hill on the first day? There are some arguments that claim that that would have been a little bit far-fetched, but I actually think so. Allegheny Johnson's men had come a long way, 
but if the reform troops already in the field were supported by some of Anderson's, it could have been done. Could the attacks in general have been better supported? Yes, although there were no reinforcements in the center on the second day. Pickett does arrive on the field in the later afternoon and could have been thrown in. Likewise, Mahone and Carnot Posey could have supported better along Cemetery Ridge. Additionally, I think on the second day as well, there were divisions under AP Hill that could have supported the attack on Cemetery Hill better, and there could have been a real breakthrough there. We saw and we read from the accounts of Harry Hayes about how the attack is almost successful, and if it had had more troops, more weight thrown into it, then that could have been very different. Cemetery Hill, of course, is used as an artillery platform. It's used against Pickett and his charge on the third day, so having that hill in possession would have been a game changer, really, for the South. And that's why it's really my opinion that the second day is really the true high watermark of the Confederacy, right? We always say that about Pickett's charge and how that's the high watermark, and Pickett's charge is almost successful, too. We pointed that out, and at least it accomplishes its primary objective in breaking into the Union line. However, there's more of a chance where the rebels could have succeeded, I think, on the second day, and it just comes down to proper coordination and support. Was it necessary for Ewell to stay in the Culp's Hill area? I don't think so. For a commander who needs to be told exactly what to do and does not seem to take the initiative, allowing for him to convince you to stay there instead of joining the rest of the army is a problem. If you're upset with Ewell for not performing as Jackson would have, and that's a big concern of yours, then you probably want to consolidate even further. All of these diversionary attacks that he's going to conduct in Culp's Hill uh, really don't go toward a whole lot, right? So you probably could have used those troops kind of in the same way as Meade will use his troops, kind of plugging them in as necessary. Does Longstreet have a point that they should disengage? He kind of does. Lee does see an opportunity early to defeat Meade piecemeal before reinforcements arrive. If Longstreet's attack on the second day jumps off earlier, then it may have been too late for the 6th Corps, so there is a point to be made there. Could Pickett's charge have worked? As mentioned, we said yes. As it was, it was not the tactically incorrect decision, but in its execution, it was severely lacking. So there is a lot left on the table for Robert E. Lee as he makes his way into Maryland and another battlefield left in the hands of the enemy. A quick side note, does the campaign accomplish its objective? Also, not really. While there were some supplies acquired in the northern movement, it does not do a whole lot to relieve the pressure from the Virginia farmer's perspective. It's safe to say not only was the battle a clear Union victory, but the campaign was also a rebel failure. Moving on to our second conclusion, we have Meade being the right guy for the job. It is unclear exactly what kind of authority John Reynolds had, but it is clear that Meade trusted his subordinate. This trust, not only of Reynolds, but the opinions of his other generals in the Council of War that he conducts, shows something different than what we have been used to. 
while not indecision, I think this is an important step to understanding his army that he has only recently taken over. We have mentioned the fact that Meade is going to play a shell game on the second day and throw in reinforcements where needed. Now he could have kept everything uniform and clean and most likely ended up with a broken line. The different corps trying to support each other while not a novel concept for the Union is going to be on full display at Gettysburg. Now here's another interesting argument that he could throw out there is that Meade probably would not have had to do this if Sickles doesn't move his core forward, right? He puts them into a position where he's going to get smashed by the Confederate attacks, and Meade is forced to respond to that situation as it is enveloping on the field. So that is something that is valuable to have in terms of a commander of an army. You need to be able to react. We mentioned how McClellan was not particularly good at that, whereas Meade definitely shows he has that capability. So in a weird way, you could say that Sickles disobeying his orders is even better for Meade in terms of his success during this battle. But obviously, you probably can also flip it around the other way and say that Sickles should have just obeyed orders and things would have been different. Meade is not only going to win, but keep his army intact, which he does. We are going to see here soon that the criticism is that Meade does not destroy Lee, but with the string of battlefield victories that the Army of Northern Virginia sees in the East, then getting a big W back in the win column for the Union becomes that much more important. Remember, there are those who say that the Army of Northern Virginia hasn't lost. They have not been defeated in the field, and this is the first true defeat that they suffer. A defeat would have been detrimental to the average citizen's perception of the war and could have brought about a peace agreement. While I doubt Lee would have taken Washington, having him move around in Pennsylvania would probably not have been good for Lincoln. Importantly, too, it becomes apparent to Lee that he's going to be limited when it comes to offensive action. Every casualty is going to really hurt the Southern cause. While the army is going to be refit and essentially back to its original strength, an invasion will be off the table, at least not until desperation sets in for the rebels, which we will see. There had been some opportunity for peace talks, which I doubt would have come to anything. Confederate Vice President Stevens would wish to open channels, which is an interesting thought. Hopefully you have all made your own conclusions, which is always the fun part for me, doing some Monday morning generaling. As we have mentioned, Lee would begin his retreat early in the morning on July 4th. Rain would begin to fall, though, impeding the withdrawal. His men would take two primary routes away from Gettysburg. John and Bowden, leading the wounded, would take the route toward Chambersburg, while the rest of the army would take the Fairfield Road. Not only were there wounded, but there were also a couple thousand Union prisoners making the march back. They would not be paroled during the march either, which means they have to stay with the Confederate Army. Meade would take some time to realize that the enemy was in fact gone. Cavalry was dispatched to harass the enemy, but I have seen in several resources that they were not used to properly gather intel on the escaping foe, which was a problem with Meade's command. In fact, the infantry would be more used for intelligence finding than the cavalry, 
Buford was going to reunite his forces, and Kilpatrick would also be geared up and ready to go. Once through the Monterey Pass of South Mountain, the Army of Northern Virginia could then move down to Hagerstown and over to Williamsport and back into Virginia across the Potomac. Also crucial were the gathering reinforcements from the various garrisons, which actually included some units who had escaped 2nd Winchester. William French, Darius Couch, and Benjamin Kelly all had forces in the area. On July 4th, we have an engagement at Monterey Pass. Kilpatrick's troopers would have not only a tough time in the dark, but also in terrain that was not ideal for horsemen. Custer would charge the retreating rebels with the 1st Michigan Cavalry, engaging artillery and infantry in the black. In some accounts, the Federals wrote about how they exchanged fire based on muzzle flashes. Despite some artillery protecting the retreat, the Federals were able to secure 1,500 to 1,800 prisoners, as well as burn several supply wagons. Many of the prisoners were actually previously wounded or were stragglers. Despite this harassment, the Confederate Army was able to get past South Mountain. Meade, on the other hand, would delay his pursuit. Another council of war would be held with his generals. The subject for this one was whether to pursue the enemy. Now you have to feel for Meade because there's a lot of emphasis placed on protecting Washington, as well as Baltimore. In fact, Halleck tells him as much when he takes over. But now there is a real opportunity to deal a blow to the Confederacy one that would probably prove fatal. Lee is trapped and must be taken, are the words given to Meade. Lincoln and Stanton both consider removing him from command. Despite the army allotting his efforts and whispers of the presidency, he's going to take a lot of criticism. Now, he had intercepted a communication from Jefferson Davis, essentially saying that there were no reinforcements coming, which, as you would imagine, would be a good thing to know. But again, you kind of give this rundown, even though there's no new Confederates that are on the way that he's going to have to face, he has suffered a lot of casualties. There are a lot of loose ends that needs to be tied up at Gettysburg, and his army probably not in the best shape to fight another battle, right? Lee's would obviously not be in a good shape to fight a battle either, but there are a lot of considerations to be made. It's not quite the same, I think, as McClellan. You know, we kind of compare the two after Antietam. McClellan says, well, I kind of accomplished my objective. There was some skirmishing that happened after that battle at Shepherdstown, right? But for the most part, McClellan says, well, my job was to defeat Lee, get him out of Maryland, and I did that. And he was a little misguided in that sort of assumption of what he was supposed to do. Meade has what he's supposed to do, and that is protect Washington, protect Baltimore. But obviously, once Gettysburg happens, once there is kind of this change in the winds, shall we say, then their expectations are going to kind of shift, and he doesn't really pick up on that quite as well. Jeb Stewart and his cavalry would perform well in the retreat despite their absence and failure at East Cavalry Field. 
he would screen the Confederate Army from their Union counterparts. Rebels would take up positions in the town of Hagerstown and repulse Union attacks. Buford would continue on to Westminster. John and Bowden and the supply wagons were there. Now, we have talked at least a little bit about Imboden, but it is very crucial here that he essentially saves the Army of Northern Virginia by throwing out an aggressive line against the enemy cavalry, making it seem like there were more Confederates. Buford would pause, despite some of his men writing that they gained a rise and they could see thousands of wagons. So, had he pressed a little harder, it's hard to say, maybe he would have completely captured all this supply and really dealt a blow to the Confederate Army. Fitzhugh Lee would also arrive in time to dissuade the Federal troopers of a further advance. Now, unfortunately for Lee, though, a contingent of Union cavalry had arrived at Falling Waters and burned his pontoon bridges. Stuart would align his cavalry to check the Federals. Meade is then going to start moving out toward Lee. There's a lot of urgence from Washington for him to do so, so he's going to start moving in the direction of South Mountain and the Potomac River. Halleck would write that he had already struck one blow at Lee, so he should strike another before he moved back into Virginia. He would start to gather his forces at Middletown, which was a few miles west of Frederick. From there, he could move toward Boonesboro where there was already some skirmishing going on with Stuart's cavalry. Custer's regiments were in the thick of it, the two regiments with Spencer's especially using them to great effect. But the Confederate line was holding. Meade was oddly enough impeded by the burning of bridges, which had been done during the original Confederate invasion. It would be possible for a potential move across the Potomac at Harper's Ferry, allowing for harassing the enemy and preventing a retreat into Virginia. Lieutenant John Meigs, son of Montgomery, would suggest a rebuilding of a railroad bridge that would allow just for such an action, but it was ignored by Meade. Because of the slow movement by the Army of the Potomac in pursuit, and also in part due to Stuart checking the enemy cavalry, Lee would have time to organize earthworks. It may have been possible that before a new bridge was completed, and before these earthworks were finished, that an on-time army could have dealt the Confederates a blow. Halleck, though, is going to start to side with Meade rather than the urgings of the President. It may also be possible Lincoln sent Meade a direct message to attack by passing Halleck, but Meade will take time moving and being organized. There still would be several options on the table, which would include setting up a siege, attacking directly, or maneuvering to cut off the enemy from their supply. It's easy to say, I think, by us or even by Lincoln, that he should be more aggressive, but we also need to understand that Lee and his army was like a wounded tiger who had just mauled you for three days. A major fear of some of the Corps commanders was that their gains made at Gettysburg could be undone. Despite some reckless charges by Kilpatrick, Meade was prepared to take it slow. Halleck would kind of play both sides and let Meade know that he was okay to wait for reinforcement. The delay had given Lee not only enough time to dig in, but also build a new pontoon bridge at Falling Waters. 
Now I have seen both sides of the argument for the earthworks. There are many, including first-hand accounts, that claim it to be a strong position. But there are also some first-hand accounts and other sources that say it wasn't actually a strong position. It most likely would not have been an easy affair. It could have been possible to maybe exploit Lee's weaker left flank, which was manned only by Stuart's cavalry. By the night of the 13th, Lee was ready to begin his withdrawal. Grumble Jones and his cavalry had already crossed the Potomac as the river level had dropped. In the meantime, Pleasanton was also showing a general lack of concern. Gregg's cavalry division was moved into a position so they can be behind Lee, but with no urgency, so it would be clear for the Southerners to start crossing the river. Stuart would move his cavalry to check the Federals while the infantry pulled out. Kilpatrick and his cavalry would realize that the rebels had flown the coop at Williamsport. Custer would lead his brigade south toward Falling Waters. Harry Heath's division had been tasked with rearguard duty. Unfortunately, Petter's brigade, still on the north side of the river, believed that they were still being screened by the rebel horsemen, allowing for the Michigan regiments to get close before attacking. Many prisoners were taken by the Wolverines, but the numbers of the defenders would overwhelm them. Pettigrew was mortally wounded with a shot to his stomach. Angry staff officers would run down the assailant and take their revenge. Beaford was supposed to swing around to get into the rear of the remaining Confederates, but Kilpatrick was blamed for a rash attack by Beaufort's subordinate Gamble. Regardless, the rebels were able to slip back across the river into Virginia on the 14th. Both sides had mixed emotions about the escape of Lee's army. Certainly, Lincoln would vent his frustrations in an unsent letter. Again, my dear general, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. If you could not safely attack Lee last Monday, how can you possibly do so south of the river, when you can take with you very few more than two-thirds of the force you then had in hand? It would be unreasonable to expect, and I do not expect you can now affect much. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. I do want to point out, especially here in Lincoln's letter, he's saying that Meade's not going to have as many men as he would possibly have in Maryland because there are a lot of units who are militia units. Probably not as good as regular soldiers, right? But that's adding to his numbers, and they're not going to be able to go back into Virginia. So he's losing manpower by allowing Lee to get back into the South and escape. Now, there are a few more actions involved with the campaign, and the moves back into Virginia. It might actually surprise you to know that the Gettysburg campaign is not yet actually considered over necessarily. We will cover those here in a future episode, but for the time being, we will give the Eastern Theater a well-deserved rest. While we have been very occupied with a small town in Pennsylvania for the past two episodes, we need to talk about what is going on out west. July 4, 1863 would mark the end of the line for the defenders along the Mississippi. 
Starvation had led to disease, and the lines were far too thin to defend against an attack. Little did Pemberton know that just such an attack was in the works that would have more than likely given the Federals Vicksburg by storm, although at certainly probably a cost of life. White flags would appear on the defenses, the two commanders meeting along the Jackson Road. There was a problem, though. Grant was seeking unconditional surrender. He had stated as such via written correspondences with Pemberton prior. If we look at Grant's record so far, this is not surprising. Remember Fort Donelson, and that had actually sparked the nickname Unconditional Surrender Grant. This campaign had been longer and cost more lives in total, and arguably he had the Confederates in a tighter fix than 1862. But Pemberton would not wish to meet these terms. He would sit with his counterpart under an oak tree, Grant having served with Pemberton in the Mexican-American War, while their subordinates hashed out an agreement. These officers would arrive to the conclusion that the garrison would be paroled, although there was no official agreement reached under the oak. Pemberton would later accept the terms. He realized that he was an unpopular officer, but it should be noted the surrender choice was out of necessity, and it was the consensus of the brigade and division commanders. He would address his subordinates with the finalized decision. Well, gentlemen, I have heard your votes and I agree with your almost unanimous decision, though my own preference would be to put myself at the head of my troops and make a desperate effort to cut our way through the enemy. That is my only hope of saving myself from shame and disgrace. Far better would it be for me to die at the head of my army, even in a vain effort to force the enemy's lines, than to surrender it and live and meet the obloquy which I know will be heaped upon me. But my duty is to sacrifice myself to save the army, which has so nobly done its duty to defend Vicksburg. I therefore concur with you, and shall offer to surrender this army on the 4th of July. Now it may have been Pemberton's preference to saddle up and head out at the head of the army, but at this point, really, the defenders are probably not going to be in any kind of condition to have that be a serious consideration. Grant and his army have been setting up this line of supply and obviously, remember, even earlier in that campaign, this is going to be an issue. So they're going to be better supplied. He's been reinforced with more men, even. And, you know, quite frankly, if Pemberton wanted to try to sally out, he probably would have done it already. So we perhaps need to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. This could be just trying to, again, and he even says it, his name is going to be dragged through the mud a little bit. So he needs to try to get out in front of it, maybe with a statement like this. The Confederates would give up their arms and then be paroled. But why exactly did Grant not live up to his nickname? Pemberton had threatened to return to hostilities if there was no budge on that demand, and while Grant was probably wary of losing more men via assaults, as he had in May, he probably did not buy it. The poor conditions made for desertions, Pemberton losing a good portion of his defenders to rebels escaping to the Union lines. They recounted exactly the conditions faced inside the defenses, so Grant was probably aware. There were two reasons as to why the decision was reached. First, the transporting of the entire garrison north would take time. While we highlighted how little Joseph Johnson has done, he does still have an army in Mississippi, which will need to be dealt with. It would be better if the majority of the federal army was ready to meet this threat. Secondly, there is a disillusion with the war, and the assumption was that especially the Mississippi regiments would jump at the opportunity to go home. If we think about it, Corinth was a major defeat, as was Champion Hill. Now Vicksburg is gone. 
Nathan Bedford Forrest will breathe some life into the defense of this area later in the war, but overall it's not looking so good for the Confederacy. Union troops would parade by the courthouse and raise the stars and stripes over the former Confederate city. Vicksburg had vexed the Union Navy and Army since 1862. In July 1863, it was finally in northern hands. Port Hudson would receive word of the surrender on July 7th. With Vicksburg gone, there was no longer any reason to continue to hang on. We have hopefully described that the situation was just as bad in terms of disease and starvation. General Garner would seek surrender terms and on July 9th march his ragged command out of the defenses to lay down their arms. At 48 days, it was the longest siege in American history up until that point. Garner was allowed to keep his sword as acknowledgement for the brave defense. No Vicksburg and no Port Hudson would mean that officially the Mississippi River was open for the Federals. Lincoln finally had his prize, and what was more, he was finally finding his primary subordinate, someone who could get the job done. And spoiler alert, his name is not Nathaniel Banks. So to recap, we have Lee being defeated at Gettysburg, which we have covered in detail. We have Bragg being pushed out of Tennessee without a major battle in the Tullahoma campaign, and we have now Vicksburg surrendered along with Port Hudson, capturing the Mississippi River for the Union and officially severing the Confederacy in two. On all fronts there is defeat, much in the same way as the fall of 1862. But how does this compare in losses to the previous year? I personally am convinced that 1862 is the end of the Confederacy, specifically in the East, but 1863 is definitely confirmation that that is how it's going to end up. Lee is going to rebuild his army and fight another day. The Vicksburg paroles will, whether through irregular or regular warfare, mostly go on to fight the Union army on another day. Bragg is going to have a victory, costly though it is, in September, and potentially turn the tables in that theater. To compare, I think that 1862 showed more hope for the rebels. They were all offensive actions, two of which were on the soil of Union states. So we can keep that in mind as we move forward, but July of 1863 is another month filled with a rapid succession of setbacks that are ultimately going to be moved toward the ultimate defeat of the Confederacy. With that, we are going to go ahead and call it a day. After some monster episodes, we can say see you later to Gettysburg. I see it more as a see you later because I think there are more things we can look at in depth with the battle. Vicksburg has finally fallen. It would be this victory that leads Lincoln to believe if Meade just extends his hand, the war would be over. While the River City would be under federal control, the war is going to continue. We will have another busy episode next week as we go abroad from Vicksburg and Gettysburg. Helena is assaulted in Arkansas. Fighting rages in Oklahoma, an attack is launched on Fort Wagner in South Carolina, spearheaded by the 54th Massachusetts. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.